Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Ben Stoff from MU University, and I'm excited to host a special episode of Dialogues today on Datadurm, which is AAD's clinical data registry. Datadurm is the only comprehensive dermatology registry that is designated by CMS as a qualified clinical registry. It allows users to achieve many of the MIPS measures and is also a means to collect data and information that can be used to advocate for the specialty of dermatology. To have this discussion, I am joined today by a couple of special guests. First, Dr. Bob Brodell, professor and chair of the Department of Dermatology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Hey, Ben. Hey, thanks for joining us. Also, Dr. Ross Perlman, uh, Chief Resident in Dermatology from the University of Mississippi Medical Center as well. Ross, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Finally, Dr. Kevin Cooper, Professor and Chair of University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. Dr. Cooper, thanks for joining us as well. Welcome. Well, let's dive right in. All of you have been involved in Datadurm. Dr. Cooper, maybe you could start by telling us why you decided to get involved with the project. Well, this was a project that kind of emerged as the opportunity for clinical informatics was coming about, you know, where you could really go through large data sets and start to parse out information. At the AED, it was important for us to be able to advocate with payers and governments and institutions and whoever we need to advocate with on behalf of our dermatologists and our patients to know well, what do we do? What exactly do dermatologists really do? What kind of patients do we see? How well do we take care of our patients? So that was the original part of it. But as we got into it, it became clear that we could benchmark ourselves against each other around the country, maybe even benchmark ourselves against other practitioners when we start getting the outcomes data that that would be inside this data set. And then finally, it became clear that we could use this to report MIPS. And so it was kind of one one system that could really give us some benefit across many things. And then another reason that I was interested in it was to be able to tie this in with some of the translational clinical research that we do at our institution, be able to mine the clinical data set and marry that up with our bioinformatic kind of work that we were doing to define patient subsets and their outcomes. You know, Ben, at the University of Mississippi, I was motivated slightly differently. We had our dean have a meeting with all of the chairs. And the dean said to us about two, two and a half years ago, the most important thing we can do to improve quality at the University of Mississippi is join a data registry. And we were given the charge to do just that. Well, we had one choice in dermatology, Dataderm, and it's proven to be a good choice. Yeah, that's great. I think you can hear the sort of like multifaceted role that Dataderm plays. You know, everything from quality improvement, as Dr. Brodell mentioned, the research implications, benchmarking, sort of MIPS compliance, and advocacy for the field, which I think is something that may be underappreciated and is a really important role of the registry as well. How about the experience at the University of Mississippi? What sort of advice might you offer other institutions who are hoping to get involved with Datadurm to make the onboarding process a little bit easier, maybe sort of convincing staff or various members of faculty, maybe 
legal, these sorts of things. Ross, did you have any experience with that as, as part of the onboarding process? Sure. So the onboarding process, the way I see it, is really working around three barriers. The first barrier is legal, like you already mentioned. You have to have a program agreement between the AAD, your institution, and then FIGMD, who's our consultant, who manages uh, Datadurm for us right now and manages the dashboard. The second barrier is the technical barrier. How are you actually going to go about getting the data that you need out of Datadurm in order to find the QI measure data that you're looking for or to meet MIPS requirements? And then the third would be behavioral. So behavioral has to do with the interpersonal uh, elements of Datadurm between you and your patient, first of all, your patient, your staff, and uh, how you actually interact with your electronic health record, how you input data. Do you use a lot of pre-fielded data? Do you use a lot of pretext and notes? All of those three elements kind of come together to form what's going to be your barrier to entry for data term. It's going to be different for every institution. One of the things that happened that is no longer a barrier, but I just want to put it out there. When I first started to engage Dataderm and my university and FIGMD, it was a step in itself because I had been told that Epic would never let anyone engage in this type of work, that Epic wants to do this on their own, and that it was just impossible. And what I soon found out was that actually at the University of Mississippi, and I dare say at most universities, we have something called a data warehouse. The data is owned, in my case, by the University of Mississippi. So Epic was not in a position to stop us from engaging in this work. Kevin, have you had similar experience? Yeah, that's true. And we were expecting a big legal problem. And in our situation, the legal aspect of it was the least of our issues. And like you said, we have an electronic data warehouse where the all the data for the whole hospital system dumps every night. And so actually the EMR aspect, we don't have Epic. We're moving towards Epic. We're in transition now, but we're on something called Insight. But that data, along with all the other data of, of the hospital, when we're working with the patient, getting clinical labs and other things, are all dumping into this electronic data warehouse, which has fields in it and delimiters on the front and back end for all the data types. So so that is where we go to as well. We go to this electronic data warehouse to try and find the data that we look for. In particular, we're focusing on the MIPS measures, you know, and the basic demographics kinds of data. We can talk about that in, in just a minute, but that is similar for us. Yeah, we own the data. Nobody else owns our data. And, and FIGMD and AAD and Datadurm all have to sign agreements on how they can use our data. So, for example, when Dr. Cooper, when he decides to actually move from Insight to Epic, nobody should presume that each piece of data in Insight is actually going to translate into Epic. There's going to be a big effort on, on the part of his institution, of course, to make sure that every single lab value, every single note, every single date, even of date, something so simple as that, is translatable from Insight into Epic because right now, unless you're using a truly interoperable code, which most people are not, then what you have is one system in English and another in French, essentially. So the translation takes a huge amount of effort. 
we're trying not to talk about that right now because we're just trying to get up and running. We have two years. If I can get a, a year or two under our belt, because what, one of the things that you mentioned was that you need the other providers in the group to all get on board and start learning how to document towards the quality measures to some degree. Like they do what they're supposed to do, but you don't get credit for it unless you've documented it in a way that it can be found by FIGMD. And so that right now, we're not really up and running. We, I think of the 10 measures, two of them are not working. They can't find the data, you know, so we're not quite ready to report. But once I see the data, now I can share it with everybody and say, okay, once people know they're measured, they will start paying attention. So right now, my faculty are not engaged in this. I'm sparing them until I can get something to them. And then we'll start working on the human side of this about, yes, you're being measured on this. We want you to engage. And then we'll work on that. But we need to get over this first time trying to find the data. Sometimes, like, for instance, some of the outcomes and some of the denominators and numerators are present in two or three potential places within the note. And so FIGMD would like to just go to one place. And we're saying, no, this is an or. You have to look here, and you have to look here, and you have to look there. And that is complicated. You just touched on like at least three critical issues, that critical technical issues that we've come across, Dr. Cooper. And I don't know if you've got a plan, Dr. Stoff, how you want to go about addressing technical barriers, but that is exactly our experience. The more complicated the EHR is and the more redundant the data is, the more difficult it is to actually have a complete report from FIGMD with accurate numerators and denominators. And we hope that our experience with Epic here will lead eventually to a generalizable approach to mapping that can be used despite the small differences in Epic from one institution to another. We're going to have to write measures in the future that are that aimed for consumption by Datadurm and by FIGMD's uh, AI, functionally. Right. And this is something where at the AAD level, where we try and have some coordination between our committees, you know, our quality groups and our measure groups and the Datadurm group all need to talk to each other so that the, the measures that we put forth to CMS are measurable things that are, can be done within our lifetime. <laughs> yes, great. Very important uh, time frame we're, just, we're discussing here. I, I think, yeah, obviously some barriers to entry and, and, and I think both of your institutions are further along, but the importance of kind of legal compliance and program agreements in place, obviously technical barriers that are both at the outset and then kind of ongoing behavioral barriers and so forth. It sounds like there's some importance in kind of identifying maybe a point person or a work group to help with this process. I sense, Ross, you may be part of or spearheading that process at the University of Mississippi. Has that been your experience there in Mississippi about really needing somebody to kind of take the charge and, and guide others? Yes, I think you're going to have to have people like Dr. Cooper and Dr. Burdell, who are your department chairs, who are have the clout and the ability to actually help get things done in the institution when you, when you need their help. Because navigating the actual bureaucracy of uh, EPIC to FIGMD to AAD that, that can be a complex interplay. But when it comes to addressing technical barriers, I think it's helpful to have a diverse team that you can turn to. Lots of different age groups represented. You know, it's helpful to have residents, young attendings, 
it's just you, you need you need someone with some expertise in your EHR to, to help you. Yeah, one of the things I would recommend to the faculty member or chair or program director that's out there is to contact the AAD and start now. Because in the next year or year and a half, while you're convincing your dean that this needs to be something that we're, you're going to devote some time and maybe a little bit of money to make this happen, and then convincing your faculty and leadership in your department, this is a direction they want to go, and then dealing with compliance and legal and other people at your university, that year or year and a half will give Case Western Reserve University and the University of Mississippi Medical Center a year and a half more to really get these ducks lined up so that the effort that will come after that will be much less than it is for us right now. One of the aspects that Dr. Brodell mentioned, which was that the dean was out front on this and wanted everybody to be on registries, that's not universal. So for us, that took a little bit of doing because if you're in an accountable care organization at a big institution, you may not be reporting in MIPS at the specialty level. And so the impetus to, to report to a registry, which costs money, uh, just to be a member of the registry, but also it costs money to put the IT together and do the reporting because we don't, uh, most institutions will not allow a company like FigMD to reach into their, inside their fair firewall and pull data out. They're going to require that we do, we pull the data and push it out so that nobody's reaching inside our hospital firewall. So that means there's allocation of effort inside the institution on a regular basis to push a report out. But so there's a resource issue. So you have to have a compelling argument as to why you should do this. And so for us, there was a switch. We changed and we went from being reporting within an ACO to reporting MIPS. And then the issue was, are we going to just report with all the primary care groups and get by with reporting on blood pressure management and weight and that kind of thing? Or are we going to uh, try and make it on our own with our specialty measures. And so we advocated that the quality that matters at the specialty level is with the specialty MIPS uh, measures. And so that was an argument I had to make on my own for a while. Now I've got ENT joining up and urology is also coming along. But for a good year there, I was by myself, which it's hard as derm alone to get these things to happen. So, but, you know, we're saying, look, we need to be able to measure our folks. When we have a system that's reaching out widely into the community, we want to be able to have common measures of quality between the community uh, dermatologists who are associated with us and our own selves and have a common quality expectation. So there's, you know, arguments that can be made and, uh, and we want to improve and this is probably the best way. And there's another uh, department you can look into, and that's ophthalmology. They have their iris registry. So there are a number of them out there, and you'll find some allies. Great advice here. I think we're here. Yes, need some lead time. And not only that, but also a strong rationale for why this is an important thing for the institution to 
participate in, like anything in academics, time and money will take time to enact. So you heard it here first. Okay, great. So I want to talk a little bit now about the kind of outputs that you might see with Datadurm, particularly the dashboards, you know, some questions about are they easy to use? Does it give you sort of meaningful data that's readily accessible? Dr. Cooper, what has been your experience with the Datadurm dashboard? Well, we're just getting going. So we're not far enough into that for me to really comment so well on that. I'm going to pass that over to Bob. Sure. The dashboards are designed very, very well. They're easy to use. The issues that we're confronting right now have to do with the fact that we'll look at a dashboard and the data we have in front of us is clearly not correct. So we have a problem with either the numerator that we're searching for or the denominator, the size of the whole group, and we're working through that. We're getting rid of the ENT doctors or plastic surgeons that do some of our procedures and some of their numbers appear with dermatology and confuse things. Just one example, but give us about another six months. We have two of the measures that are pretty good right now. We have about six more that we're working on. And I think within four to six months, we'll have all of those MIPS measures where they're uh, not perfect. We never want to let good get in the way of great or whatever that is. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be good enough that we can get useful information and find individual faculty members, for instance, who aren't doing an activity as much as we wish they would be and so on. One of the things that is my dream is when we take it a step beyond MIPS, because in my university, in my department, we don't really care about MIPS. The whole university applies to the government to get their percentage of Medicare funds related to this sort of thing. But we're looking for things we can do where we can, number one, make it so it doesn't take any doctor or nurse time. Our doctors and nurses are up against it with, I say, dying of a thousand cuts as we're trying to keep up with all these different things going on at the university. So we're after finding things where maybe patients can report to us. Maybe in the waiting room after a procedure using an iPad, and then we can learn from that data in discrete data sets that we design. Then we go to the American Academy of Dermatology that has a committee and seek for them to approve this so that other universities and private practices around the country may wish to join us. And then we're going to be really in a position to understand some things that we're not doing as well as we want, benchmark ourselves against others, and make changes to do better. Yeah. One of the things I'm interested how you guys deal with it are some of the measures that involve time, like how many months or what's the, what's the time period between when you diagnosed the melanoma or biopsy the melanoma and you acted on it? Or did you get a PPD or a quantiferon test within the year that you're treating the patient with the biologic? Those are complicated measures to get out of an EMR because other physicians are doing things also that might look like that or don't look like that. And so I think in the future, 
is you know getting rid of time-based measures but or measures that involve if this happens did something else happen within this time frame it's tough to do and you know i guess it can be done but the level of programming for that escalates quite a bit versus just a simple numerator denominator now of course it some of those are the most important things and we know that for instance in, with healthcare disparities that patients you know underrepresented minority patients have a greater delay in getting a sentinel node biopsy or an excision, a definitive excision after the diagnosis of their melanoma, which may impact their survival. So sometimes time is probably a really, really critical measure that we want, but we want to make sure that it's it's really an important measure before we throw a lot of those in. I think there's two things going on there, Dr. Cooper. And in, in the I would start by kind of answering your question in reverse and saying that I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't shy away from using time as a component of our QI evaluation, because we're going to have to do it eventually. There's no way we're actually going to move into the future of quality improvement in the current healthcare landscape, especially with respect to quality in dermatology, and we're not going to account for time as a variable. So we don't want to shy away from it, in my opinion. We want to attack it head on and find ways to locate the data that we need in a straightforward manner in the EHR. And that's where I think that your technical analysis of your mapping is going to come in. And that's really, in my opinion, mapping and remapping, or in other words, optimizing your data collection strategy are really where the the finesse in getting your dashboard to actually reflect reality come in. And we've had measures where we've revised, we're on the sixth or seventh revision of them. And that's not meant to be a negative report on BigMD or on Epic or anything. That's just the nature of the complexity of the data is that it requires constant refinement. And with respect to timeframe measures, for example, quantifieron tests for our biologic patients, one strategy that we've used is to try to sort of build an algorithm where first we locate the last encounter date with the dermatology provider. So maybe that's last week. After that happens, so after the last encounter with dermatology that was signed has happened, then we next detect the last quantifieron date and basically subtract the dates. Is it greater than one year or less than one year? If it's less than one year, you're met. If it's greater than one year, you're not met. Yeah, it's so complicated. It really requires somebody, a collaboration that I think you were referring to. And I think the audience can resonate that your level of engagement and understanding of the data and the process is high for a physician. (laughs) And so, yes, I think it's essential. Eventually we're going to have to have people who are going to need to assist big MD and the AAD and each institution. We're going to need teams of people in each group that are working together to cross check each other and verify that things are actually happening in the most efficient way possible. And I would recommend that anyone out there that is pushing for this and it comes through that you find somebody like I found Ross, because Ross has a hundred hours in this for my 10 hours. Mm. And so he can report to me and we can work together on the direction we're going. It's got to be a doctor. It's got to be a dermatologist. Mm -hmm. And the person has to be young because old people like me, it's just the distance to travel is too far for the number of years I have. I don't mean to die. I mean to be. (laughs) But that means that you get somebody who's young 
passionate. Did I mention passionate? Someone that really wants to invest themselves in this. And finally, someone who's a bulldog. We can't have a quitter. So when you run into a problem, it's got to be somebody like Ross that's not going to let go until it gets solved. Absolutely. I agree. Great advice. So I think we're hearing that, you know, there is this kind of iterative process of refinement that's really part and parcel to becoming engaged in a project like this. And also that need for a champion also is something that seems like a key to success here. I wonder if we could just talk for a minute, and we've alluded to a lot of this already. If, if, you know, if there's a listener out there who works in a department that's really strongly considering getting involved in DataDerm, what are a couple of sort of concrete first steps to get the ball rolling? Dr. Cooper, what's sort of the initial steps to begin to bridge the gap? I think you need to get leadership engaged, number one. And I mean leadership at your chair's level or your division chief's level, at the practice you know, group president's level, whatever, the, the dean, whatever, there has to be a little bit of engagement beyond the department. And that's what your chair is going to have to work on. If somebody's gone down the road before, that's a little helpful, you know, with someone in another specialty, but sometimes you're going to be the first, what we call in our department, we're usually on the bleeding edge of stuff. We don't intend to be, <laughs> but Somehow we find out, but nobody, it seems obvious to us this needs to be done, but it hasn't been. But yeah, I would say getting some engagement higher up because you're going to need, you know, all these institutions have silos of activity and they have allocated efforts. So the IT people, they have allocated effort. The research IT people, they have allocated effort. The data warehouse, the electronic data warehouse for the clinical data has a somebody, they have allocated effort. And when you start, none of it is allocated to you. And so somebody higher up has to say, all of you need to give them 1% of your effort or whatever it's going to take. And so you can't mandate that. You can buy them gifts and things like that, and that might work a little. And we do try and build relationships across the institution, but these are not established relationships that we have. These are silos that we don't normally interact with. So you have to build that and then you have to start engaging within the department as well. And Dr. Cooper, I 100% agree with that. Obviously, I was lucky where the dean charged us with finding a way to get hooked into a registry. That was great. But then if I had a nickel for every time I dropped the dean's name when I ran into roadblocks, I'd be rich. Yes, right, right. That's it. So yes, the importance of leadership buy-in being on the bleeding edge, a great phrase, and starting the process early. Ross, anything else that you sort of see as an important first step in the engagement with Dataderm? So the actual beginning of our journey here at University of Mississippi predates me being a resident. But if you're just now getting started, I think a good thing to do would be to go ahead and build your team out the way that you envision it being for the next couple of years to get it off the ground. That means going ahead and getting a resident, get a young resident involved or a medical student even. Get a, uh, get a young faculty member who you know is going to be around for a while to be with you as well while you're reaching out to your department chairs, to your deans, to your heads of institution. So build out the team that you want to see work on this for the next couple of years and bring them all through the journey together. I would have loved to be there for the actual legal discussions that were involved, 
so I could better understand the underpinnings of them here at our university, but that I just wasn't here at that time. But uh, I think it would have been helpful because I'm trying to just now learn what Dr. Bob went through to try to actually make this happen. And it was facilitated at University of Mississippi in a way that it's obviously not being facilitated at other institutions just because we did already have the dean on board, which is great. But yeah, it would have been nice to be there from the very beginning. That's great advice, Ross. I think to some degree, both of the pieces of advice kind of feed each other. I think having that diverse team in place probably helps with the advocacy piece with leadership and then vice versa. Building that team, knowing that leadership is on board is also helpful in terms of moving forward. Okay. So as we close, Ross, maybe you could speak a little bit about what your vision is for the application of data or maybe just beyond the kind of compliance piece into something that may seem more meaningful from a sort of quality type perspective. Sure. Uh, and, you know, people who know much, much more about Datadurm than me and who have mentored me at, at other institutions and through AAD, they've impressed upon me that the point of Datadurm is not MIPS. Datadurm was retrofitted in order to meet MIPS criteria and MIPS requirements because we were being hit with these changes in the way that we're paid. So Datadurm has nothing foundationally to do with MIPS measures whatsoever. Datadurm is all about building a data foundation on which we're actually going to make changes through analyzing data that are going to make patients' lives better, that are going to make dermatologists perform better, that are going to make the value of our services greater, that are going to demonstrate the value of dermatology in the house of medicine. So we have two projects that we're working on right now at the University of Mississippi. These are pilot projects where we're trying to use the FIGMD-based dashboard in our current Datadurm, the current foundations we've got built in through our Datadurm integration to try to see data that's different than the MIPS data. Because really MIPS data uh, is, it's a tiny, tiny sliver of the actual quality questions that we have about how patients are doing. So what, one thing that we're doing is looking at patient post-op data. So after they come in for their surgery, for their Mohs surgery, for their excision, we are having them put in some patient-reported survey data at six weeks and six months, and we're trying to make that survey, we're trying to tag it with various software codes so that this standard could be used in any institution through any EPIC, regardless of your institution, and it could be very easily basically cut and pasted, and it would be immediately comparable from one institution to another. So that's one project we're doing. So, Russ, before you go on, we might be able to know whether patients experienced acute pain during their procedure, whether they had a chronically painful process, what they think about their scar. Did they have bleeding or a hematoma? We might be able to get data that data that we can compare with our other institutions around the country. And number two, Ross? Yes, that's exactly right, Dr. Bob. And we are still perfecting the actual contents of the survey. And number two would be, where this is more of a technical challenge that I've sort of set for myself and our department and for the FIGMD team, we're trying to scan the chart using their AI to try to find out when both a shave biopsy occurred and when a photograph was taken at the same encounter. We want to know how often we're failing to take pictures of our biopsy sites, especially for tumors. Because, you know, occasionally we will come across, for example, when we have a patient in for Mohs, we'll come across a patient that's missing their picture. And 99% of the time, there's no problem with finding the actual site. But we want to know how often we're doing what we expect ourselves to do, which is to take a picture with every shape biopsy. 
So very straightforward project, at least it would sound like, find out what the rate is right now of photography with shave biopsies, but actually a lot more complicated from a technical perspective than, than it would appear on the surface. Fascinating. Can you really see the links to a patient-oriented outcome there, which is so powerful? Dr. Cooper, what about the experience at your institution, the sort of vision for how this might apply in the future? Right. So we're obviously interested in those same kinds of things, you know, like, for instance, a quality measure that we've used for years, even when we were in paper, was what percentage of the time did each provider do a complete timeout pre-procedure? Critical, because you know, the one time you skip that one piece is the time that that's when you didn't ask about whatever, right? right. So that was one of the you know, measures that we've used for many years, which we're now getting out of the data warehouse. We're not getting it out of MIPS, but it's the same idea. It's a locally brewed quality measure, I guess, that we're going into and getting that out of the data warehouse. Now, going into the data warehouse actually gave us a lot of insight into what's there and what can be measured. So part of it is what do you think is important, but also what can you actually measure? And we got some ideas out of that. So we're looking into, for instance, correlating itch scores with the blood transcriptome of, of patients. And, you know, and we can see that there are these RNA expression in the leukocytes is different than those who have high itch versus those who don't have high itch. And so this is where you can now marry up the intricacies of clinical outcomes and clinical methodology with lab-based characterization of patients and patient subsets who are experiencing different risks or different outcomes. So that's where I see a lot of power going down the line. And the, I, you know, I, I think I agree with Ross about the MIPS was not really the core thing. Um, what really is there is the broader vision of bioinformatics about what we're doing with our patients and being able to tie that out with other aspects. And I love the idea of tying it with the survey pieces and tying it with lab pieces and other things that you can correlate to get more information about our patients and knowing, well, why does only a certain percentage of patients respond to anti-IL-12 or anti-IL-23 or plus anti-IL-23 versus other patients, a higher percentage respond to just anti-IL-23, even though it's a narrower target. Why is that? And so that's probably buried in that data somewhere, right? And we want to be able to figure that out. And I might just add that my vision for the future is that a pharmaceutical company that has to spend $20 million doing a study might be able to do it for $5 million if they find that they get volunteers from individuals and universities that have Datadurm where they already know the age of the patient, the sex of the patient, the drugs that they're on. They know all of this stuff. It's already in there. It doesn't have to be recorded just for this study. And maybe a little smart paragraph spits out for each patient that's in the study. If you volunteer to do this, you fill in five or eight spaces instead of 75 spaces, and you can do an important study on the cheap, perhaps even better than they could do it on the outside. That's my vision. You know, another thing, Bob and Ross and Ben, is that we don't really know how academic or institutionally employed dermatologists take care of their patients and are successful in their outcomes as compared to the private dermatology world. So right now, the 
Datadarm data is entirely private practice, which is great. But what happens when you're in an employed group? And how does that group measure itself? And when you're dealing with patients that are, let's say, of a different demographic than what's typical for private practice or different acuity of disease or different expectations of behavior as a physician or, you know, wow, is the data the same? And we're going to have to be sensitive about that at first, because if it's just the two of our institutions that are reporting data and somebody goes, oh, well, you know, those guys at those two institutions, they don't, mm, their outcomes, as compared to private practice, we're going to squawk if that were to get published, but if it went the wrong way, of course. But, but, you know, we have to be careful about how to know that, but we need to know that, right? We need yep. to be able to measure ourselves and, and improve uh, within our groups. That's right. After we squawked, we'd make things better. Yes. I don't think that there's any more powerful, at least in my vision, there's no more powerful tool that's going to exist to advocate for our patients, for dermatology as a field, for equity, and for all the various goals that we're trying to fulfill as far as taking care of patients goes, the number of issues that you can touch on with this data is infinite. You want to know how harmful step therapy is to patients? Bam, we have that information right there. I can show you how long they've suffered for with a substandard drug. You want to know how certain patients are having to wait, certain groups of patients are waiting longer for a lymph node biopsy? Bam, it's right there. You want to know, you want to know the difference between a dermatologist performing a procedure or making a diagnosis or managing something and a different specialist or a mid-level provider, it's all there. All of the information that we need to help our patients is in this database. We just have to have buy-in from everybody and eventually all get on the same page. Well, one of the issues there is that it's only the dermatologists that are reporting in, right? So we don't have the ENT or the primary care person who's biopsying a, a, a melanocytic lesion and then doing a shave excision of a early melanoma, you know, yeah, we don't, that's not in there, I don't think. It's not in there. I would hope that eventually all this data will be out in the open. At least we'll be able to say what we do. Yes, right, right. And you can go into other databases and validate it. You know, like you can go into like a Medicare SEER or you can go into a, yes, exactly. you know, a, a state Medicaid database right. or something like that. There are right. ways for us to compare our data to others, yeah. but um, yeah. uh, I think that eventually all this will be out on the table sometime in my career, at least. It's a very exciting prospect. And I think we, you know, we can see the power in the data, even well beyond just mere compliance. We see practical clinical questions, practical research questions, advocacy for the field, really good stuff. I want to thank our interviewees today, uh, Dr. Brodell, Dr. Perlman, and Dr. Cooper for your tremendous effort in this realm and great vision for the future. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.